HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hi, this is Linda Palaccio, and you're listening to A Taste of the Past. Today on A Taste of the Past, we're looking at the politics of women's food work. And this is information from a new book called Feeding Fascism by Diana Garvin. Diana is an assistant professor of Italian with specialty in Mediterranean studies in the Department of Romance Languages at the University of Oregon. Her teachings include modern history of Southern France and East Africa, fascism and neo-fascism, feminist and post-colonial theory, food studies and film studies just to name a few, I guess, right? (laughs) Dr. Garvin received her PhD from Cornell and her BA from Harvard. She conducted her postdoctoral research at the Academy, uh, the American Academy in Rome. Garvin's research examines the history of everyday life across fascist Italy and in Italian East Africa. Uh, Diana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Linda. As I spoke to you just before the show began. There's so much material in your book, and, and it's fascinating that you decided to focus on the what a lot of people would call, oh, the mundane, the woman's work, the cooking, <laughs> but hardly, hardly such. And this is a period we're talking about. Not this is, you know, a lot of people think well when they think of the fascist period, they don't they forget that it started a lot earlier than in during the World War II period that we're talking about the period from 1922 to 1945 right that's exactly it the fascist ventenio so the 20 odd years of fascist rule right right um what so what were you looking when you started the research for the book were you really aiming for this the politics of women's food work specifically this project actually popped out of a toaster. It was <laughs> um, on my very first research trip, I was looking at something completely different. I was looking at the regime's massive projects, the big clinics, the government buildings. And I went to the Wolfsonian Museum in Miami, Florida. 
one of the curators opened up a cupboard and I almost staggered backwards. There was so much light shooting out of this cupboard. (laughs) It was filled with fascist period appliances with toasters and Bialetti mocha pots. Everything was shining in chrome, all these geometric shapes. And I realized that all of those big aesthetics that I had been looking at in my fascist period architecture class as a graduate, um, all those things that were happening in the big buildings were happening at the scale of everyday life in the objects that you would have right in the kitchen. Right. It was a period that, you know, that early period where things were, I guess they were pulling out of the, the depression of, of uh, World War One, and, and um kind of making making themselves be heroes and and redesigning everything uh, during that period. Uh, design in particular became such a big deal, right? Design made huge change there were huge changes in this period to the design uh, of kitchens and uh, really all parts of the house. I often show two pictures side by side when I teach this material. One of a turn-of-the-century kitchen in Sardinia. It's dark. The whole family is gathered around an open hearth. All kinds of animals are there. You see donkeys, chickens. Um, And I show it next to a picture of this bright, white-tiled room. It looks like a small sanitary laboratory, but it's actually a kitchen. (laughs) And it really shows how kitchens changed under fascism. People often say, well, wait a minute, isn't this just modernization? Wouldn't you see this in any interwar country? And to a certain extent, people are right. A lot of these changes have to do with home economics. It's during this period that those booklets are translated into Italian for the first time. But there's more than that going on. We often talk about, well, did food change during this period? We can put a pin in that. But something that people don't realize is how much the dishes that the food was served on changed. They go from being heavy, large, uh, large, heavy objects. Everything gets smaller, it gets lighter. And that is directly, that's a direct inheritance of fascist autarkic policies. Hmm. Now you just brought up our um, autarkic, and uh, that is something that you talk about in the beginning of the book, and that is the um, the philosophy or the ideal ideal of autarky. Can you talk about that? What you mean by that, and what was going on at the time in Italy? Autarky essentially means made in Italy. So for this period, it means that the regime is pushing Italians to produce more domestic products and that those products stay in Italy. So all Italian production and all Italian consumption. What that aimed to do was to insulate Italy politically. If Italy was not dependent on foreign trade partners, then it could act unilaterally and avoid the problems, uh, it could avoid problems related to economic sanctions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I mean, you had said we can pinpoint a lot of these changes. Uh, when you talked about the kitchen, the modern kitchen, it just brought to mind the, the Frankfurt kitchen, 
yes. um, which was on display for several oh several years back at a museum here in New York City, and how you know that just sort of seemed to uh, streamline the work, modernize the work, uh, make everything efficient, but it also kind of felt as though there were someone behind you telling you, you know, okay, now, you know, work, work, work. <laughs> so <laughs> those um, were, go ahead. You have, and then you find that that is, that is true in a lot of these kitchen designs. Yes. During this period, the regime was building huge new public housing projects. They're known as mm-hmm. the Casa Popolari in the exurbs of the cities. So many people are coming from the countryside to the city to work in the factories. And at the same time, the kitchen becomes a factory during this period. So it adopts ideas from industrial settings and then applies them to the private sphere. And Frankfurt kitchens were part of this. Um, they came from German public housing projects. And they rely on something called the Taylorist Work Triangle. So that comes from factory studies of time management. These new layouts aim to streamline cooking work by placing each step in a logical order. So the cook moves from preparation at the work table, to cooking at the stove, to cleaning at the sink, to placing plated meals on the final counter under the cupboards. Under the cupboards. Every element aims to maximize productivity in space. It's funny, we still, even in, in modern day kitchen design, we still use that holy triangle, you know, have your- have We your still have those. Stove, right. <laughs> when you redesign your kitchen, make sure you minimize the number of steps back and forth, right? <laughs> Not, it's true. changed, right. Um, that's interesting because it's, it is efficiency design in general taken to an extreme. Um, and- and then I, I wanted to go back to what you had said. You it's everything in the you know the kitchen, but and how the uh, as far as Italian made the the autarky and, and and applying that to food, but even more the whole the whole elementary autarky, if you will. You and you coined it in your book. You refer to this period as the fascistization of home economics. So we're talking everything being touched by, you know, in entering into the daily lives of people. Uh, how, you know, how, do you see this at the people? Were they aware that their lives were becoming politicized, do you think? I think they were aware of it and people had a whole spectrum of reactions to it. So the easiest way I can think of telling this story is through a chocolate bar, through um the work of an entrepreneur, um, Luisa Spagnoli, who you may have tasted one of her famous bacho chocolates. So it means kiss, just like uh, Hershey Kisses in the United States. Little silver confections with their blue writing. She crafted luxury from leftovers. So she used cast off chocolate, hazelnuts, that was a local a locally produced nut so there's ample supply and it means that she can produce her chocolate much more cheaply it also means that she can recast her product as patriotic so it's basically using fascism as fashion hmm. it's funny because uh, bachis have always been my one of my favorite candies, and and I would always give them to my kids um, as a special treat for uh, for Christmas in the bottom of their 
Christmas stockings and never did in a million years that I real. I thought this was one of their star products. Never did I <laughs> imagine the, the, politics behind this, <laughs> this innocent little chocolate. <laughs> it's not and, to say <laughs> Well, we can talk about, I mean, it was her company, the Paragina company. It became the, the very successful Paragina company. But the story about Luisa Spagnoli in your book is, is quite, um, quite interesting. We can talk more about that later. But when you, so these, all these things that are so, that came into your awareness, um, and you said it all started with, you know, with toasters. So what did you look for? What were you hoping to find? How did you, how did you go about the research for this, all the, this topic? I started my research in a archive that a lot of historians of fascism use, which is the Archivio Centrale dello Stato in Rome. Mm-hmm. It's a massive government archive the big kind of brutalist concrete design. It's part of the Eur district, part of the uh, the neighborhood of Rome that Mussolini had constructed, envisioning a 1942 World's Fair that never occurred. Right, the big the big modern buildings. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Too big for any use, right? Exactly. And all I could find was what the government had thought was important. The endless sheafs of paper, my hands were always so dry by the end of the day from uh, moving, from touching so many pieces of that uh, yellowed onion skin style paper. And it was very useful for getting the government stories. But what was missing was all of the stuff. The what did what did these buildings actually feel like? Where were the where were the spoons? Where were the dishes? Where were the recipes, the menus? All of the things that people touched in the places that they lived. And I realized that the people who were collecting those things were not going to be the government. It was going to, ultimately, I needed to start looking for archives that were similar to the people whose stories I wanted to study. They were going to be much smaller they were not going to be easily accessible. They're going to be way out in the countryside. And they were probably going to be very underfunded. So I tried to work against what a friend of mine jokingly refers to as Frecha Rosa history. So Frecha Rosa being the high-speed train line, the red arrow that links up the major Italian cities. It was basically using bus schedules as a research method. And you and you made a note in your um, note to to future researchers to take a lot of time and save a budget for a lot of coffees. <laughs> I thought that was great. It's the research fuel. It's um, really the archives are the people. In so many cases, it was um, work songs and diaries. The uh, one of the best places is the Archivio Diaristico in Pieve Santo Stefano outside of Arezzo. At the time, there was one bus that went there on Tuesdays at 6 a.m. And uh, God help you if you needed to get back within the week. But it offered so much time to sit with the stories and to talk with people in town. And almost half of the project would develop from there, would be from people who were saying, oh, well, you really need to visit this antiquarian fair. You really need to 
chat with this person who has this collection of cookbooks from the period. Let me show you this recipe, and here's where I think it changed. Mm. That and that I found to be a very interesting discussion too. Was the you're looking at the the recipes and the cookbooks and the effect of the changes on autarky, <laughs> how it applied to the the cookbook language. Can you talk about this the, the, this rebaptizing, as you call it, of certain food terms and uh, and the authors who were dealing with this? Yes. So let me start with an example. It is things like the word bar becoming cuisi beve, a here one drinks. It's terms like a um, like a cocktail, so the English term becoming a poly uh, polybibita, so a multi drink. This all comes from a mini dictionary. Um, in the back of F.T. Marinetti's Futurist Cookbook, he tried to translate all these French and English culinary terms into Italian. So it's part of a nationalist project to regain Italian culinary prestige. Hmm. And it's really from this period that common terms like barista are actually born. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, even I, it was funny because I was looking at a reference in one of that you gave um, from one of the cookbooks where they couldn't even use the term Scott, a recipe for Scottish shortbread. It had oh, to be changed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been Lydia Morelli. It's yeah. well, it, it starts with so it's the nationalist lang the nationalist culinary language project gets a big push from the futurists, but it's it's popularized by a whole lot of female domestic experts. So you could really think of them as the culinary influencers of the period. It's Lydia Morelli as Martha Stewart telling you how to arrange your home. Um, Petronilla as Stanley Tucci, who's going to take you on a regional tour of, <laughs> uh, of the continent. Um, Ataboni as the barefoot contessa, who's going to tell you how to manage the sanctions through your recipes. Great analogies. I like that. Um, uh, were they aware and had they gotten the directive on high to to adjust their writing in their books? They had Would, not. Did you find evidence of that? They had not. And that's partially what makes it so interesting because this is how fascism actually reached most people. In many cases, the regime can find itself to these public rallies. And when they tried to get into the home, they were not always, they were not always widely effective, particularly in the countryside. The folks who actually did manage to get recipes across the transom of the home were these independent entrepreneurs who who were using fascist policy towards their own ends. And it could be for a variety of reasons. There is a whole spectrum of consent to the regime and, res and resistance against it among these authors. But they all engage with the politics because their readers are living under this regime. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and you talk about um, the 
resistance, and, and because then, then we get into to thinking about as the period rolls on and uh, rolls back, if if you will, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a lot of of focus on the lack of food in these cookbooks, and that changes it too. But even prior to that, the um, I guess the 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 use of these books as propaganda in a way, because you look at the covers and some of the the drawings and the and advertisements at that time, and um, that's why I was wondering: were they aware of how much uh, of propaganda their books were actually providing? I think it depends on the particular cookbook author in question. So Lydia Morelli, for example, who did From the Kitchen to the Salon, was likely very aware. Mm-hmm. She was largely responsible for popularizing some of the fascist architectural notions of what a kitchen should look like during this period. So while these designs, it's things like a smaller kitchen, it changes the colors of the walls, it changes the materials of everything from the floor to the dishes that you would be using. She makes them fashionable for a middle-class audience. So it's not only the working classes who are essentially forced into these buildings due to economic necessity, she actually makes these ideas popular. Hmm. Interesting. Um, And the working and the the middle-class women, as you said, they're taking on more of the working-class roles as we get into the the later years. But we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back to that about the working class women's roles when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred. My organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hi, we're back and we're talking about feeding fascism, the politics of women's food work with Diana Garvin, the author. And Diana, um, what about as we move into um, the periods, uh, you know, a little bit, I guess later after we see this this a little little bit of um, economic boom, and then suddenly you know the the um, the availability of food becomes uh, very limited. And 
how has that I mean, directly affected women's lives and how did they try to control it? First, it really changes the way that recipes are constructed. Prior to this period, most recipes are written as one long continuous paragraph. So imagine that you're standing next to your grandmother at the stove and she's orally narrating how to brown the chicken that she has in the pan. Under fascism, that changes. So uh, Dr. Amalia Moretti Folja, who is the doctor behind the pen name Petronilla, probably the biggest cookbook writer for this period, started to offer recipes for chicken soup without the chicken. Because of that, ingredients start to come at the top of a recipe. So if you've already used up your ration of rice, you saw it right at the top and you knew not to read any further. And cooking methods change. There's more cold food under the assumption that you have to ration your gas as well as your rice. As you mentioned, middle-class diets start to look a lot more like working-class diets. Mm-hmm. There's more foraged foods like frogs and bird eggs, um, greens from the fields. And people start to eat things that they didn't before. So more guts like blood soup and more lab-borne products like Liebig meat broth and gelatins. Hmm. All right. The, um, a lot of the female... Um, House would be would be housewives or the women doing the cooking in the home. They were now going out and working. I mean, the men were were gone off to war, and a lot of them were going into the factories to do the jobs ordinarily done by by the men. Now, but then there's the particular group of women, and a lot has been written about this. Um, and they were the mondine. Can you tell us about the mondine and their their vocal? Uh, play in this whole period. Oh, I just fell in love with this group. <laughs> they are, uh, you would hope to be friends with them. They are loud and funny and thoughtful. Uh, they just jumped off the page in all of the work songs that I was reading. In fact, I actually started listening to their music at the gym. They are a group of seasonal workers. So um, they do, they do seasonal agricultural labor. They were getting on trains from across Northern Italy to help with the 40-day weeding season. The reason they matter for this period is the Wait, regime- The 40-day weed, weeding season in, but in particular in the rice paddies, right? Yes, rice my paddies. apologies. Yeah. So no, they, no problem. <laughs> they would, so they were all coming up to these, to the rice paddies in Northern Italy in, um, the in Lombardy, uh, to a certain extent in Piedmont, women from ages 15 to 65. And they mattered for the fascist period because the regime loved them as an image. They were, uh, they were physically large, florid. They appeared very fertile. They tended to have many children. And they seemed to epitomize the ideal fascist woman. The only problem was they identified as socialist, communist, anarchist, and letters show that they were in a state of near constant revolt against the regime for the entire 20 years of fascist rule. And uh, their, their resistance was culinary in nature. So it was everything from 
work songs that emphasized how frustrated they were with the working conditions for food production under the regime. They hated having endless rice and beans. They argued that they had the right to wonderful flavors and tastes as well as just the calories necessary to survive. And they're responsible for, through their strikes, the eight-hour workday in Italy. <laughs> There's, well, it, you make mention of it in the in the book, but if anyone has not um, has not seen it, and I'm sure a lot of people have not, there was a wonderful movie um, called Riso Amaro, um, yes. and which is bitter rice, and it's all about these women and their and their work songs, their call and response, and their and their protests through work songs that a lot of people thought they were just singing along as they worked, right? And <laughs> and if you listen to the words, you realize that these were they were talking about politics the entire time. It's how they practice for the strikes. They actually mm -hmm. did this call and response patterning across the fields that they then used to coordinate their strikes and laying across the train tracks. Yeah. And here they are, it's in the rice paddies and they're such, you know, such attention is given to producing the rice. Well, whereas we think of Italy as being bread and pasta and a lot of wheat, Hmm. That's in, that's in, in not in very um, obvious uh, production. It's truly wild to think about. Italy is the largest rice producing country in Europe. Um, this was true in the 30s. It's true today. And historically, it has not been able to produce enough wheat in the nation to feed its very well-known pasta habit. So the regime attempted to change national foodways. In a way, it was pushing northern foodways in Italy, so rice-based diets, and trying to encourage the South to eat more like the North. After all, fascism was born with Mussolini in Predapio, a small town in Emilia-Romagna in northern central Italy. Hmm. The breadbasket of Italy. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Interestingly enough. Right. Um, and that, of course, did not fly for an, a lot of these workers who came from the south to work up north. And they, because the rice paddies were predominantly in the north, right? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, it's part of a, this push to get Italians to eat more rice was part of the uh, the 10 year so called battle for grain. So Mussolini introduced a number of these culinary battles, basically rafts of propaganda, everything from newsreels to pamphlets, but also recipes and even newborn holidays called sagre, which were newly invented so called traditional food festivals mm -hmm. that aimed to get Italians to eat more domestically produced food. So chestnuts, grapes, and of course, rice. And to this day, <laughs> <laughs> still around. <laughs> oh yeah, the sagras are the are you know the the pride of every every local community of what the, whatever it is they produce. And yeah, that's it's a it's, it turned out to be a wonderful thing. <laughs> <laughs> These things can shift over time, and some of them yeah. do predate fascism. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, Back to, to your talk about um, the bocce chocolates through the Perugina company that was started with Luisa Spagnoli. Um, you you do write a very interesting and uh, story about her uh, and her entrepreneurship 
um, and her innovations. Can you talk a little bit more about her factory, her her factory, and, and her efficiency? And um, I think she was kind of knew what she was doing. Uh, she really did. <laughs> Luisa Spagnoli is such an interesting figure because she shows how women survived under fascism, in some cases by using it. So she was a powerful leader in Italian industry. She founded a chocolate company um, using some of her sewing savings from when she was a child. Um, she worked as an assistant to a seamstress. She was working so young, she was sneaking ribbons home to play with as toys. With those savings, um, she managed to create a true industrial establishment. So by age 30, she had 400 workers, 300 of them women, a sleek modern plant. And part of the way that she managed to be so successful was by leveraging fascist policies to suit her factory goals. So one of those policies is pronatalism. The regime wanted Italian women to have many more babies because more infants today meant more soldiers tomorrow. So in her factory, Louisa introduces a number of pronatalist measures. Um, and a lot of these appear very progressive at first. It's things like adding health insurance, sick days for pregnancy, um, covering women's husbands as their dependents. Um, there were nurseries for workers to breastfeed during the day, um, even summer camps. Children of workers could go to the seaside for two weeks. Again, these things can seem really progressive. Uh, many companies today still don't have breastfeeding rooms. But the intent was actually regressive. It was to get as many hours out of each factory worker as humanly possible. And in effect, it completely fused the public and private life for these workers. And it also brought their families into the sphere of work. So everything was under the company's control. And in fact, fascism later adopts many of these ideas, things like putting breastfeeding rooms in textile factories, creating summer camps for children, um, because it provides a high degree of surveillance. Hmm. Right. And the productivity, I mean, it was there was no question that the factory was successful. In terms it goes of through the roof. All right. All right. And what great propaganda as well, once again, oh, for the regime, right? It truly is amazing. So that's, uh, I just talked about sort of the inward facing elements of the factory. She also used those pronatalist measures to advertise the company on the outside. So at trade fairs, in newsreels, um, cooking magazine ads, everything reminded customers that Perugina supported prolific mothers. So, for example, for Easter, um, a holiday strongly associated with birth, Perugina would fill their chocolate eggs with prizes like baby booties that were made of Italian rabbit fur. Um, and that was a brilliant piece of cross-marketing because Louisa had just begun a side business, um, a fashion house focused on autarkic fabrics. And that company that started with baby booties and sweaters made out of rabbit fur Today is the Luisa Spagnoli fashion line. Mm -hmm. I mean, the name is, if you walk around, you know, shopping districts, you the name is very recognizable. It rings it out. Right, right, right absolutely. Um, there, of course, the, the period of, of um, rationing 
it, during the you know later on in during the wartime, you know, was prevalent in all countries, and in Italy it was there was just nothing, and there it was a, an austere. I mean, the the period of, of of austerity. I mean, it really they had to be very inventive to get any kind of food on the table, and yet you know being the the cuisine the the cuisine being as as strong as it is now and was then um it kind of developed during that time are there any recipes or dishes from this period that you can think of that that perhaps became staples in the italian cuisine you know what's so funny is i can think of a dish but in the sense of a physical dish that is on a table rather than the recipe. Mm, that's right. And you pointed that out in the beginning in the, and I, and I didn't follow up on that. Yeah. Talk about the dishes. It's, uh, it's so strange to think about, but the iconic octagonal Bialetti mocha pot is born in 1933. It is part of those model fascist kitchens that were built entirely from autarkic materials and um, so it's everything like, I think I mentioned the walls changing color. They turn white and blue. It creates business for Italy's growing ceramic industry in Emilia-Romagna. Floors are suddenly made from aluminum, synthesized in Milanese factories. And that Bialetti mocha pot was aluminum, which was true of so many pots and pans and appliances during this period. So... Different domestic experts, um, Morelli's one of them, celebrated these kinds of materials for being cheap, easy to use, um, but they also provided direct financial support for Italian chemical industry and refineries. Um, and they helped the fascist economy by creating demand for these materials. But in addition to supporting autarky, these materials all share one other quality. When you wipe them clean, they shine. And it's part of their allure, but it also makes dirt really obvious. And that fact mattered if you were using a Bialetti mocha pot or any of these dishes in those public housing projects, because living there meant that you had little money, but a lot of kids. Um, after all, if you were a prolific mother, so defined by the regime as six or more children, um, you were able to move up the wait list and you were more likely to get some subsidized housing. Right. So many of these women had to rely on um, the fascist-run cafeterias for mothers, soup kitchens, and milk dispensaries for food. Um, and using those services came with a string attached. It meant frequent visits from the wives of fascist officials to make sure the hygiene of your kitchen at home was up to snuff. So with these materials, the visitatrice, uh, it's the eeriest word, the fascist visitor, could make a judgment at a glance. Um, so these materials, when you just look at a picture, it seems like modernizations. It seems like what was happening in allied and Axis kitchens alike. Um, but in Italy, there's a different history. Um, these materials were supporting autarky and they opened working class kitchens to regime surveillance. Hmm, interesting. And the problem is, if you looked inside the Bialetti pot, it pitted. <laughs> it pitted terribly. I had one of those aluminum ones, you know, from way it's back. It's true. When. And you can never get that pitting out of the, you know, the heavy metals from the water. 
Oh, <laughs> oh, especially with the calcium, which is so common yeah. in uh, in in uh, yeah in so many of the water systems. Right, right. <laughs> that's and that's where it pitted. That's why I'm just <laughs> mentioning it. Um, it. The um, it's interesting because the and I had been thinking about you know food and and what dishes. A lot of times we refer to. Um, the cuisine of Italy being la cucina povera, but that it's, it's really not true. I mean, they, they may do with everything. They used everything, but, but a lot of the dishes that were, that one thinks to be a lot of the pasta dishes from that period are definitely not there. They're not making the pasta dishes. Then they're not using wheat. They're not using, you know, they well the little bit that they can, they'll make the bread, maybe a, you know, a pasta once in a while. Um, and I thought, well, then polenta. Polenta has to be one of the dishes. No, polenta was around. It was a staple long before that. It's just that nobody liked it when they had to eat it all the time as mush. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly it. So many of those additions that we think of now as making Italian cuisine, and particularly la cucina povera, so tasty, the meats, the cheeses, the pasta, those are far more recent additions. Right, right. Uh, when you talk about the um, the material culture and how the propaganda traveled through these material details, through the um, the pot, the shiny pots and things, um, it's interesting because something as mundane as a kitchen tool. I mean, did you know? So many of them were were developed with, by the regime, and and they became these propagandist uh, objects. Um, anything besides the, the, the kitchen tools, well, the kitchens um, that you can think of and how these, well, you, you wrote something and I'm going to, um, I'm going to turn to your book. And that is that um, about examining kitchen objects from creation to disposal reveals how industrial design colludes with fascist politics. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that, about how this, you have to really see this from the beginning to the end? Yes. I'm going to come across as obsessed with toasters, but truly <laughs> there is a toaster that emblematizes this. Um, so thinking big, electricity and hydraulics are new additions to public housing during this period. And in the kitchen, they radically change cooking habits and hygiene levels. But less obviously, they also reshaped the female body. And toasters let us look at that. So let's say I want to toast a piece of bread. In a 19th century Italian farm kitchen, um, there's a big open fireplace. I need to lean over the flames. I need to hold up a heavy iron grill. And over time, that's going to redden and roughen my face, my hands, my arms. Um, it's going to build out my biceps. But if I have a shiny new aluminum Italtoast toast toaster, I can just push a button. So the kitchen stays cleaner. There's no wood smoke, no ashes. Um, plus, I have a sink for easy cleanup. And all of those highly visible body parts stay delicate, white, and unmuscled. So all the markers of female upper-class status in Northern Italy at this time. So what this means is that electric and hydraulic infrastructure in the home not only cleans the kitchen, but it also gentrifies the female body. 
So this isn't to say that the fascist regime is using a toaster army to dominate the public, um, but it's an example of how a private company is making use of the new regime-funded infrastructure, Mm -hmm. as well as these new aesthetics of speed and technology to push a product. Um, And in fact, if you look at the ad copy for an Ital Toast toaster in this period, it focuses on the regime's autarkic materials, so all that aluminum and chrome. It shows one of the new Milanese housing block kitchens, and the ad copy claims this is the most patriotic way to make toast. <laughs> oh, well, propaganda has a weird way of spreading, right? <laughs> Through fashion magazines of all places. Oh yeah, oh yeah, fashion magazines, and, and you know, in these. Um, the housekeeping guides and, um, you know, do it this way and you will be, you know, you will be a better person. Yes. uh, So, but the women, the women really were, um, I guess they had their ways, their safer ways of resisting and protesting. I mean, they were no longer just the consumers of food, but they were also now the producers. So, their voice was was quite important. It's really impressive how the full spectrum of resistance that you see during this period, what you see a lot of done inc- to incredible effect is uh, what's been referred to as the weapons of the weak. So that means forms of protest that um, keep the consequences as low as possible by design. My favorite example that's been incredibly underreported is the cooking fire riots of Rome. When these new public housing kitchens were first introduced, they were actually much larger. They were almost like Soviet-style kitchens. And women who were living in these housing blocks absolutely despised this new design. So they now this used, was a, this was one excuse me this was one communal kitchen within the housing block right exactly yes so you don't see them and the reason why is because of these protests what women did was they simply didn't use the kitchens and they started creating cooking fires in the courtyards um, of Garbatella of the new garden district housing projects. More and more, those fires started to rage out of control, and women would claim, oh, it's simply an accident. The winds are too high today. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the excerpts of Rome were lighting up on a regular basis. And eventually, architects like uh, Botoni and, um, yeah, I'll just focus on uh, Botoni, were forced to, uh, sorry, Piero Botoni and Ignazio Gardella were forced to rethink those larger kitchen designs, not only because women simply wouldn't use them, but because they were starting to torch the excerpts of Rome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Well, it was. It's if anyone gets a chance to to um, see, I think on like on some of the like Criterion Channel or someplace they have, you can still see um, uh, the movie Bitter Rice, and. It is such a prime example of what you are talking about. And, oh, and it's beautiful. Stand up and, and talk out for themselves. All right. Well, I just, there are so many different facets of this whole period that one often today looks back, you take it for granted, these 
that these advances were made, these changes in, in particularly the material culture, and, and but not, not in the cuisine so much, um, and where they came from and why they, why they developed is, is pretty astounding. And, I, and Diana, I thank you for, for spending your time to talk about the book and anyone who gets a chance to read it. It's certainly there are just so many different, different stories throughout the book that are, are um, just very well done. And um, I congratulate you on that. Again, the book is called Feeding Fascism, The Politics of Women's Work. And the author is my guest, Diana Garvin. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by listeners like you. Learn how you can help by going to heritageradionetwork.org.